This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the second episode from our second year, it premiered in October of 2010, and it's called In Harm's Way. I got armies in Camp Chaka, the training in the rain. I'm all up in the Congo and I'm taking the Ukraine. It's risk. It's risk. Motherfucker. It's risk. It's risk. Motherfucker. Roll the dice, the flag unfurls. Move the cavalry, dominate the world. It's Kids, welcome to Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. At least not with you, on your commute, or on the treadmill. You could have at least had the decency to meet him for a cup of coffee, but you didn't, so here we are. I'm Kevin Allison, that was Morning Bell up top, and this is Junk Culture behind me now. And today's storytellers will be talking about times they were in harm's way. Times they thought... Danger, Will Robinson. You didn't think I was going to do that, did you? Let's start with Andrea Rosen. Here she is at the Risk Live show at 92Y Tribeca. We call Andrea's story Incest Peppermints. So my 
about in harm's way is sort of um, more of like I will put myself in emotional harm's way. Let me just say, do you have you guys ever seen the the show The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a couple seasons ago, um, The Bachelor was Brad, who's actually going to be The Bachelor again because he didn't pick anybody. But um, he was this like bar owner from Austin, and he was like really good looking. And, you know, all the girls were in love with him, and I I watched that show. Like I love stupid television, and that's like I'm really into it. So anyway. The third to last girl who he kicked off, Bettina, when she got kicked off, she was in the limousine and they have the camera in like the contestant's face as soon as they get rejected by The Bachelor. And she was crying and crying and she goes, um, she goes, well, I guess, I guess I just was in love all by myself. And um, because Brad wasn't in love with her. And I thought, oh my God, that is how I felt when my brother married somebody else. <laughs> um, because, because when I was little, I just was so in love with my brother. And I like knew, I, had, I just knew that he, I would end up marrying him. Um, <laughs> and I think it's just because like you know he was a guy and he was always around and <laughs> and you know we were being raised by a single mom who didn't date so like I didn't even get that like you weren't supposed to marry your brother I never like had any examples <laughs> um, and you know I kind of worshipped him he was you know older than me we have the same birthday we're exactly three years apart and so I thought that was like that meant something and when we were little also we played it was it was totally my sort of creation but um, we played these two characters Esta and Harry Bobo and I was Esta Bobo and my brother was Harry Bobo my husband and we started I started creating these characters when I was like six years old I, I did grow up in New York City on Roosevelt Island, but the characters, Esta and Harry, they lived in Queens. And, <laughs> and they had huge accents, and they were really tacky, and I would like put on a huge wig and like make my tits really big. I didn't even have tits at age six, but um, I would stuff my shirt. And my, our whole thing was like, we had all these kids, I would be like, we have so many kids, and, but, <laughs> but I, and and he would he always played along really well. He'd be like, yeah, we do, we do, and then um, and then I would say, and I hate our kids. We hate them. They're dogs, and we treat them like dogs, <laughs> and we feed them dog food, and I lock them in the bathroom, and then I put the dog food underneath the bathroom door, and that's how we feed our children. And then part of Harry's character, my brother's character, was that he was a cross-dresser. <laughs> I don't even know where I came up with this. My mom was, like, very, you know, like, prim and proper. But, like, my mind was in the gutter even then. And so I'd be like, and Harry, Harry, he just takes my brassiers and underwear, and he wears them all the time underneath what he's wearing. Don't you, Harry? And my brother was, like, eight or nine years old. He'd be like, yeah, Esther, yeah, I do. <laughs> 
we would like go to our grandparents' house, like in Northern California in wine country, and like not leave their house. We would just like record these radio shows all day of Esta and Harry Bobo. And I was like, we gotta do a radio show. We gotta do a radio show. We're not going outside today, you know? And that's how, so anyway, I thought it was like such a great collaboration. And my brother, you know, did whatever I wanted. And creatively, we were kind of on the same page, my page. Um, and I just was like, this is love, you know? <laughs> so, um, so then, you know, and also I have to say that my brother is, he was like cute as a child, but then like as we got older, like he's like really good looking. And like, <laughs> and, like you know, he, he's just like, you know, he, like in high school, he would like ride his skateboard around, but wear a business suit. It's like, whoa, you know, like, <laughs> like he's, you know, he's conservative and he's crazy. Um, and he was like really smart and like, you know, kind of cold. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he was just kind of great. And then, and, and so um, when I went to college, I would put pictures, like all these pictures up of me, of my brother on my bulletin board. And then like when people would come into my room, my dorm room, they'd be like, oh my God, is that your boyfriend from home or something? I would like kind of turn red and, but be like, no, it's my brother. <laughs> but I was still kind of like into it. <laughs> so obviously we got older and I sort of was like, this doesn't really seem appropriate that I have this crush on my brother. Um, and I kind of buried it, but it sort of like came back and in full force when he told me and my mom that he was getting married. I was just like happily eating cereal one day and then my mom was like, your brother's getting married. And I was like, what? what? Like, it was so crazy to me. So. He got married to this woman, a Jamaican woman, and they got married in Jamaica. And it was like a five-day wedding in a tiny resort, which was really five days too long. Um, <laughs> because it was, it was just like 30 people, including my very divorced parents who hadn't seen each other since their last day in court 10 years prior. And my dad decided to bring his newest fiance which was, you know, it, it just was like, uh-oh, uh, 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 you know, but we were in Jamaica and I don't really smoke pot or anything, but um, I was a full-on waker and baker in Jamaica. I mean, I don't know what happens there, but like, I don't know who arranged it, but there, everybody had huge bags of pot and we were all just high out of our minds all day long, but we like had to be, it was emotionally necessary. Because, you know, my parents hate each other and they were having to, like, frolic on the beach together. Oh, and my dad would just be smoking, like, a spliff just the size of a didgeridoo. Like, his joints were so huge. I was like, there's so much pot. Like, just roll little normal ones and smoke a lot of them. But he was just like... Um, so, at the actual wedding, people were sobbing. Like, I was just crying my eyes out. And other people were crying so hard also, and I thought, oh my God, maybe I want, I'm not the only one who's like in love with my brother. <laughs> um, because people were really like, <laughs> really losing it. At the actual, like at the dinner, it was one of those weddings where everybody gave a toast. And um, I, I was just like, I cannot, I'm not gonna give a toast. Like, wh I, first of all, I'm so high. 
Second of all, I'm so heartbroken. Like, I just couldn't even deal with it. But it, like, came around to me, and I just, like, stared at my plate. And my brother was like, you have to give a toast. And I was like, no, I, I, uh, I can't. I'm too high. And he was like, you have to. Like, I'm never getting married again. You just, you have to. And so I, like, you know, tapped my champagne glass, and everybody, like, all eyes were on me. And I, I had nothing prepared. I had no idea what to say. And I, I looked at my brother. I looked in his eyes. And I, I just remembered this game that we used to play. And I just started sharing about this game that we used to play, which was called Leave a Present. And the, I made it up. <laughs> and the way you play is um, I leave a shit in the toilet. <laughs> That in the bathroom that my brother and I shared as children and then I would wait right behind my bedroom door which was right across from the bathroom sometimes for hours and it was weird like the longer I waited for him to show up like the better it was for some reason so like my legs would be asleep I would be half asleep and then I would hear him walking to the bathroom and I would like get really psyched and then he would go into the bathroom and he would do his part of the game which was just discover the present and he would look down in the toilet at the shit that I left for him the present and he would go oh Andrea gross and I would just like laugh so hard and be like ding I win you know that was my game and and that's what I was sharing as my wedding toast and and then it reminded me I sort of like got into it it reminded me of the next game that I made up which was that I would wait for him to use the bathroom and he would go in and then I would put my ear up against the door and I would hear him like starting to take a shit and I would go, oh, that's right, relax, just relax, it's gonna come, just let it flow and he would be like, Andrea, stop! And I would laugh really hard. And, and then I, I kind of came to and realized, oh my God, I'm like in Jamaica at this wedding, all these people are looking at me. like. I was in such a high dreamlike state that I started reveling in these stories and this game, these games we used to play that I forced on my brother. And I looked around and I did think like, oh my God, was this just like really inappropriate? I looked at all the faces, everybody was looking at me. I couldn't tell like what their faces meant. And then I looked at my sister-in-law, my new sister-in-law, and she was just looking at me like, oh, God, oh, God, like, you know, and I, I was like, I think I was inappropriate, but I thought, I'm so high, I don't really know. Thank you. You need to know 
This is Risk. After the wonderful Miss Andrea Rosen, we heard from The Heavy. And this is Laura Barrett behind me now. Our next story comes from the great actress, Lily Taylor. You know Lily from shows like Six Feet Under and movies like High Fidelity, I Shot Andy Warhol, Dogfight. Not just a brilliant artist, but a very sweet person. Here's Lily with The Duel. So growing up, my dad suffered from severe manic depression, and he was in and out of hospitals all through my childhood. There was one particular time when I was about 16 or so that he was having an especially intense manic episode. There was a feeling of dread in the house because we could all feel where things were going to be going. There were six kids, and uh, the two youngest were my brother and I. We were uh, under a year apart, actually. We came home from high school one day. I was 16, he was 15. And my dad was sitting there in his big black chair in a pink slip. His hair was up in bobby pins, and he had a lipstick on, and he had a big smile on his face, and he said he was just so happy that we were home. And would we please sit down on the couch? Would we like anything to drink? What could he get for us? We sat down on the couch, and in front of us, we saw every knife from the kitchen, from the small knives to the, to the biggest, sharpest knife that we had, and everything in between. There were about 25 knives on the table. And Dad said, listen, I, I can see you've seen these knives, and here's what I want to talk to you about. Duffy, this, this is for you. There's, a, there's been a problem. I think we can all sense it. There's, there's just there's too many men in the house. There's not enough room for the both of us. One of us has to go. It's not going to be me. I can tell you that much. So I would like to challenge you to a duel. I would like you to take any knife you want. We'll go down to the basement, have it out like two, two, two gentlemen, and one of us will come up. Please, Duffy, choose whichever knife you'd like. Duffy said, I don't want a duel. Dad said, come on. I mean, you got to say it's a brilliant plan. Duff, there's just not enough room for the both of us, right? And Duffy kept saying, I, I, I don't want to duel. And I could see how far gone my dad was. I didn't know what to do to try to reach him. He had been a writer at one point in his life, and I, for some reason, came up with a ridiculous uh, metaphor of, of using the, the pen is mightier than the sword, Dad. You, why don't you write it out with Duffy? Do, well, that wasn't going anywhere. Dad just looked at me and then looked away and looked back to the knives. Dad was getting more and more agitated. I said, oh, you know what, Dad? I'm going to get you um, a Dr. Pepper, because he loved Dr. Peppers. And maybe that'll just, we'll just drink a little Dr. Pepper and, you know, get our bearings. So I snuck away and called my mom, because it felt like 
she was the one who could always get him back. So uh, I called her at work and I said, get home fast. He's, he's gone. And she got home fast and came in. I hadn't told her what was happening. So she came in and saw the knives laid out and said, you know, what the hell is going on here, man? She scooped them all up, went into the kitchen, came back out, took my dad, went into the bedroom. They closed the door. We heard whispering. And after about 45 minutes, mom and dad came out. He had, now had his hair combed over and a suit jacket and some pants. And he had slapped some cologne on. We heard the sirens outside, the ambulance. And he just looked down and walked past Duffy and I, mumbled sorry. And they went off to the hospital together where he uh, stayed for about a month and got calibrated and came back home, tired but uh, somewhat restored to sanity. This is Automated Acoustics. We heard this as a jaunty little tune at the top of Lily's story, only this second time around, we're playing it slowed down 800%. And now check this out. Let me explain to you. What you've got to say for yourself now. Check this out, girl. named Big Ben sent me this one. Well, we have a couple stories by people who have taken classes with us here in New York on the show today, like the wonderful Mike Canillo, who you're about to hear. But you don't have to live in New York to get our storytelling training. If you want to learn more about that, write to Kevin at risk-show.com. Here's Mike's story at our live show. We call it The Wild One. My nickname used to be Mad Max, and I grew up on the South Shore of Long Island, and I ran with a really wild crowd. We were like these redneck rock and roll surf dudes, and we were, it was like the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, we were just like living a nonstop party. We were in a street gang called Alpha Omega Theta, and uh, <laughs> we were, and, I mean, it was not like a, a college fraternity, it was like a it was we were in high school it was like a cross between like animal house and the warriors we just liked we just loved to like party i mean basically sex drugs rock and roll and fight that's what we used to like to do but uh there's one thing unusual about me like i wasn't like the toughest guy there like a lot of the guys are really tough i mean like i was i was a little bit tough uh but i got kind of beat up more than i beat people up you know so I kind of had to like prove my manhood a different way. Like I had to be like the wild guy. I was kind of like the clown out of our group. We had a, I had a lot of fun. Uh, 
we, uh, we were pretty wild. And uh, also it was at the very early 80s and it was uh, punk was starting to come around. And I, I actually had like started to become a punk rocker. And like eventually like my rock and roll buddies would actually cut me off and disown me. Like that was a little bit down the road. But I had like one foot in one world and one foot in the other world. I eventually got to a point where I was even too crazy for them. I mean, in a sense, like, I was probably the first guy out of the group to, like, start flirt, fooling around with guys, you know, a little bit. And uh, I was pretty radical. I was the kind of guy who would be at a party, and I would be the guy who would take all his clothes off and chase girls around the party, you know? I was kind of, like, getting a little bit out of hand. And, uh, <laughs> you know, ba but basically it was like, you know, I was actually kind of insecure, you know, and it's like my insecurity, like, equaled my bravado, you know, like, as wild as I was, that's how insecure I was, and it was like dichotomy, it was like, it was, it was like a, this mirror, and I had to keep outdoing myself, I had to keep being more wild and more wild, and I remember one time when I was hanging out with my friends, again, this was when I was still hanging out with my rock and roll buddies on Long Island, we were going down to Long Beach to cop some drugs. And uh, this, was the, uh, this was the ghetto, man. We were headed to the ghetto to buy. And uh, I was going down there. It was me, Eddie, Audie, Elon, and a race ahead. And, uh, <laughs> and we were going down to cop some drugs. And we, we were down there. And I was also a drug dealer back then. So, like, I was a designated drug dealer. I was in charge of going to cop the weed. So we, we pull up into by the Long Island Railroad train station where they were dealing drugs, you know, on the street corner. It was Saturday night, it was pretty wild. The brothers were hanging out on their stoops with their ghetto boxes. The dealers were out on the street. I mean, there's a lot of shit going down. And I'm getting ready to get out of the car, and Artie, who's another maniac, said, hey, Canelo, we got, there's a BB gun in the glove box in case you want to have some fun. And I opened the glove box, and there it was. It looked like a 45. I picked it up. It weighed like a 45, you know? It would look like a real gun. And I don't know, I got inspired. And I, I looked at the gun, I was actually kind of psyched, and I was like, well guys, it looks like we're partying for free tonight. So I took the gun, I tucked it under my shirt behind my back, I got out of the car, and I headed over to the corner with all the guys. And like immediately, they all came up to me, and they're like, coke, pot, whatever you need, we got it. And I was like, I, I need three dime bags. And they gave me the three dime bags, and I checked them out and I opened them up and smelled them. It was like regular like Colombian dirt, you know. It's what it was, you know, but it's, it was gonna do the trick. And I said, I need, I need th two more bags. And uh, they're like, show us the money, white boy. We need the money now. And they were like, in my face. And I was like, I will, I'll give it to you, but just give me, you know, two more bags. I just wanna make sure it's good and I don't get ripped off. And they're like, okay, and they gave me the two bags. And, and then once I had five bags in my hand, in my head I was like, God, it's like, shit to get off the pot, you know? And I just took a step back. I reached behind my sh underneath my shirt. I pulled out the gun and I, and I said, listen guys, this ain't your lucky day. And their faces dropped. And all of a sudden, one of them screamed, he's got a gun. And this melee broke out and I panicked. I mean, like, I'd be honest with you, I did not know how to play the scene. And I, but, but I was committed, you know? I mean, I, I had a job to do and I just, panicked. I just took the gun. I pointed in his face. I pulled the trigger. I shot the guy right in the face. He went right down instantly. It was not a real gun. It was a BB gun. But uh, 
And then I just kind of lost it. And I just started shooting everybody. I was like, I just needed to protect myself. And I just started shooting everybody. And everybody's like running away, like falling. They, I mean, they probably thought they got shot. I mean, like sometimes when you get sh shot, like you don't even know you got shot. You just feel like there's burning in your leg, and, but you really got shot. So these guys, I mean, it was an air pistol. So like they probably thought they were getting shot. So they were all falling down. And I was just like in a dreamland fucking shooting away. But it took about two seconds. I mean, the gun wasn't going bang, bang. It was going pew, pew. <laughs> it took about two seconds for them to realize it wasn't a real gun. And one of them goes, it's not a real gun, kill him. I immediately woke up and I was like, oh fuck, I gotta get the fuck out of here. I turn around to run back to the car. My fucking friends took off without me. I was fucking standing there. I was like, holy fucking shit. I just turned around, I running after the car as fast as I fucking could, with fucking five brothers on my ass, running towards the car. They started slowing down, I was screaming at the top of my lungs. They started slowing down, and I saw the, one of the rear windows rolling down. I caught up to the car, I dove in the window, just as a hail of bottles and bullets came crashing down on the car. I was in the car, upside down, sideways. They just fucking peeled out sideways took off down the block and we got the fuck out of there. And thank God, and the, the miracle of it was, well, whatever, 10 minutes later, like we were just laughing, just partying and just like, it was like mission accomplished, you know? Like I, I, it's like I got my creds, you know? Everybody thought I was crazy and I was the coolest guy that night, you know? I was like, I was like yeah, you know? But you know, the, the, the fucked up thing was, I was, only, I was only 18 at the time and the thing is, I was on like this like drug-fueled tear. It was kind of fueled by like abuse, insecurity, and bravado. And it's like, it lasted till I was in my mid-20s. It got even worse when I joined the punk scene. And by the time I was like 26, I was done. I was like on death's door. And uh, the only place I was headed was either jail, institutions, or death. I mean, I was done. And, but I chose sobriety. I got sober, I stopped, I cleaned my act up. and. Uh, it's been great. I'm still here today, thank God. But the most twisted thing of it all is that I live in fucking Park Slope. I'm married to this like beautiful, brilliant scientist. I have two twins. Instead of belonging to a street gang like Alpha Omega Theta, I belong to the Brooklyn Brownstone parents of twins. I mean, like, go figure. I mean, but I'll just end on this. It's like, if you're ever in Park Slope and you see some like long-haired guy with a ponytail pushing some kids and you're like, oh my God, another leftover hippie. Like, think again. It's your worst fucking nightmare. <laughs>
So she says... She said, Now look here. Of course it's splendid, he remarked. Well, it looks like it, doesn't it? But then... Agatha spoke. As I say... She said... I was so sure. But, uh, Dr. Chance clutched Bingo by the arm. As a matter of fact, I have something up my sleeve. He said with a smile. Well... She said, breathlessly. Ooh. Oh! How horrible! Wasn't it? Suddenly, after lunch, Agatha said... I've thought of something. Huh. Yes. What? But one word had caught the other's attention. Indigestion. In college, I backpacked through Europe with two of my best friends, Carney and Kyler. It was a six-week trip, and we went all over the continent, and it was a lot of fun, and it ended in Pamplona, Spain, for the Festival of San Fermin and the running of the Bulls. Now, I'd wanted to do the running of the Bulls since I was in eighth grade, and I read The Sun Also Rises. I started worshipping Hemingway. It became my favorite book. It's actually the thing that made me want to become a writer. And so I'd looked forward to it for a long time, but during the entire six-week trip, I'd gone back and forth about whether I was actually going to do the running. You know, because it's dangerous. People, they get hurt running with the bulls. They, people even died doing it, and I wasn't sure I wanted to take that risk. And there's a reason they say, mess with the bull, get the horns. And it's because they have horns and they get you with them. On the day we were going to do it, we walked down to the fence that lines the narrow cobblestone streets the bulls run down every morning during the Festival of San Fermin, and we checked it out, and, and, and we thought about it, and in America, if you're going to do anything, like if you're going to do a 5K fun run, you have to register and pay $50 and get a bib number and sign a waiver acknowledging that, yes, you could die from jogging. In Spain, to run with live bulls, you just step through that fence. The only deterrent to doing the running of the bulls is common sense, which was not a deterrent at all for my friend Kyler. He stepped right through the fence. I hesitated. I was really nervous. Growing up, I was always the kid. If you were doing anything remotely dangerous, I'd spend the entire time saying, uh, are you sure we should be doing this, guys? I'm standing there, and I, I don't know what to do. I'm looking at Kyler on the other side of the fence, and then I'm looking at Carney, who he decided he was not doing it long ago, that it was too dangerous. And, and I'm looking between the two of them, and I kind of start to panic. I'm like, what if I get hurt? What's the healthcare system like in Spain? Is it good? Of course it's not good. This is a country known for napping. And so I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm frozen, and Kyler finally says, just step through the fence, Madison. And so I did. And as we walked away, Carney yelled after us, Be careful! Which is probably the most useless piece of advice I've, I've ever gotten. So we mixed in with the crowd, and we were all wearing the traditional outfits, the white shirt and the white pants with the red sash and the red scarf, and it felt like we were in a Hemingway novel, but I was still nervous. There was this kind of buzz in the air, like right before a fight starts, and I kind of had no idea what to expect. A small rocket went off in the sky, signaling that the bulls had been released, and we stood there, tense, ready to run, just, just wanting to get a glimpse of those bulls, and, and suddenly there was a surge of people came running around the corner. It was a, this wave of white and red, followed by six gigantic bulls, and we turned and we started sprinting, and I could feel hands on my back as people were pushing me, and people yelled, go, and vamanos, and toros, and I was running, and someone fell beside me, and I thought, I should help them, and then I thought, no, leave him, he's already dead, and I kept running, and, and within seconds, the bulls had overtaken us, and, and people, it was just chaos, people were hanging from windows, and cowering in doorways, and, and some lay on the grounds in the fetal position, trying 
trying to cover their heads so they wouldn't get stomped on. And a person behind me got thrown five feet in the air by a bull. And, and Kyler, he dove through the fence head first, Superman style. And I ran over to the fence, but I, I didn't jump. I put my hand on my fence and I was ready to jump and I looked and the bulls came running by me, not five feet away. And, and I just stood there and I watched them and I could see their muscular legs churning and, and I could see their sharp horns passing in front of me just feet away and it was impossibly beautiful and, and amazing. And even in that moment as I stood there, I knew that this was the most badass thing I would ever do. And it's not like there's even a close second after that. Like, the second most badass thing I've ever done is, is get a squirrel out of the house that got in through the chimney. Like, that's it. I am not a badass. So the bulls ran by, and I helped Kyler back through the fence, and we congratulated each other, and we began to relax, and our heart rates fell. And that's when someone yelled, Mas Toros, there are more bulls! We took off running again, running as hard as we could, and it's at a half a mile to the bullfighting arena. We sprinted the entire way, and, and we kept looking behind us, waiting for these bulls to catch up to us and possibly kill us. And it wasn't until we got to the arena that we realized there were no more bulls. We'd been running from nothing, terrified, which is probably some sort of metaphor for life. So we walked into the bullfighting arena and it was filled with cheering people and it was amazing. It was round and it had columns and a sand floor. It was like the Colosseum in Rome and, and there was, it was filled with people cheering for us. And Kyler and I were hugging each other and we were hugging strangers and we just kept saying how awesome it was. And in fact, I was so excited that awesome was about the only word I could say. Kyler was like, that was so cool. And I was like, it was awesome. And he was like, I'm going to get some sand from the arena and take it home and I said that's awesome and so we, we started taking handfuls of sand and shoving them into our pockets and Kyler said I'm going to get some red sand because that means it's been stained with bull's blood and I said that is awesome even though it's kind of just unsanitary and, and so we finally we left the arena and as we're walking away this old man comes walking by and his, his shirt is torn open and it's stained with blood and, and the bull has got him a little bit and the first aid people say, Medico, do you need medical attention? And he looks at them and he shakes his head and he just says, no. And we say, that's awesome. And so we walk back and we find Carney and he asks how it was. And we say, it was awesome. And he, he looked a little sad and he said, you know, I, I should have done it. There weren't that many bulls. I, I should have done it. First of all, screw him. There were plenty of bulls. At no time did I think there should be more bulls involved in this. But what he said really made me realize how, how happy I was that I'd gone through with it. You know, I'd, I'd achieved something, a life goal, and, and I was so glad that I'd stepped through that fence. This is Risk. After Mike Canillo's story, we heard a little rap made especially for us by Yeah Big and Kid Static. Then an excerpt from Case of Death by the godfather of sound collage, Mr. John Oswald. We heard our man in L.A., Madison Perry, tell a tale called A Farewell to Limbs, Almost. And this is Junk Culture behind me again. Well, we have one more story from our last Risk Live show. The B 
beautiful Joy Gabriel tells this one. We call her story the same thing she calls her solo show. This is Mother May I. When I was really young, my mom gathered our whole family together and she told us that she'd seen the Lord. Okay, yeah. And um, it got really, really quiet as she described how she'd talked with the Lord face to face. She said, he looked me in the eyes and he told me that I am guaranteed to go home. I'm as perfect as a person can get. And I didn't laugh. I'm, I'm as perfect as a person can get. And there is nothing I can do that will keep me from going to heaven. So in my little brain, this made her God because they were the only two perfect people in the universe I was aware of. So it was really the most amazing thing I'd ever heard, but it made sense if I thought about it because um, not only was my mom super faithful, she raised us all as very devout Mormons, but she was also by far the best mom on the block. She was kind of like a Mormon Paula Deen, if you know who she is from the Food Network, just like wanted to fill all the kids up with love and butter. It was great. And she explained that because she was special, it meant that we were too, which was like finding out you're one of the X-Men or something. I was like, oh my God, am I gonna get wings? It was, it was really exciting. And it was this really elite club where we knew that the Lord was in our corner and he'd take care of us no matter what. And he did. I guess whatever we needed, my mom would just ask him and it would show up, whether it was rent money or new shoes or a prom date for me 24 hours before the dance started. She got it. And um, there was one Christmas when we didn't have enough money for presents, so she was like, let me talk to the Lord. And then a stranger showed up at the door with cash. So every Christmas after that, all of our presents went from Santa, but they had a little tag that said, with love at Christmas from Jesus. And one year I was really excited. I was about 12 and I got a bra and I was like beside myself. And I was like, thank you, mom. And she's, oh, don't thank me. So I was all, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so um, it wasn't really about the stuff. It was more about uh, this incredible relationship that I had with the Lord. He was very real to me and really involved in the details of my everyday life. And it was mind-blowing, but it was also really kind of beautiful to know God in such a very personal way. I know that sounds crazy, but he was really my best friend. I trusted him like I trusted my mom. Sorry. And I knew that he would take care of me no matter what. And it worked. So fast forward to college. I'm at NYU when I meet the sweetest man alive, Joe. And he was Mormon and a cinematographer. Crazy, I know. <laughs> but he wasn't as Mormon as me. He had this big, huge, extended Italian Catholic family, which was worrisome. But he, I really felt he had a good heart and I could Mormon him up. So naturally, we get engaged because I was 21. It was time. 
And, and um, then my mom said she wanted to give us a really special gift. So she said, you know, Joy, it's just so noisy in New York. And the Lord has showed me that if you don't have a sanctuary, a, a quiet home, you are going to have a mental breakdown and be divorced in six months. So she wanted to throw us a big wedding and get us a you know cute little apartment on the Upper West Side, get it all decorated, which sounded great. She said, um, just the thing is, we can't pay for it all right now, so we need to borrow $3,000 from Joe and then pay him back in three months. And in that instant, I got this feeling that I never had before. I couldn't recognize it, but it must have made me say to my mom, are you sure? Because, you know, he wants to make a movie and he wants to start a business and so he really needs his credit. And she just like put up a finger and stared at me and said, don't you trust me? Which that really kind of hurt my feelings that she would even have to ask that because yes, of course, of course I trust you. And she said, good, because that's what this is really about. This is also from the Lord and Joe needs to understand that. If he is gonna be part of this family, he needs to understand the way we work. We depend on the Lord for everything. And if you need a wedding and an apartment, he will provide it. Don't worry about the way he's gonna provide it right now. Your money, Joe's money, our, the Lord's money, it's all the same. <laughs> so I just swallowed my feelings and asked Joe, who, being Italian-American, is genetically incapable of saying no to family. So he was just, done. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I got it. It's done. Because he's from the Jersey Shore, I guess. Um, I don't know. He doesn't sound like that at all. He's probably really annoyed right now. But regardless, he gave my mom his credit card. And then it just felt like we went at light speed. She was putting together a wedding. And she was uh, buying custom drapes and a designer couch. And then, of course, there were plane tickets across the country for all the family. And I knew this had to be more than $3,000. But I felt genuinely sick nauseous every time she mentioned the wedding so I just nodded my head and let her charge her car payment too so but we got married and it was really amazing and our little apartment was just like barefoot in the park and Joe was Robert Redford except shorter with dark hair and I was Jane Fonda except Jane Fonda <laughs> and then the bill came it was $30,000 and I felt sick but my mom was totally calm she said don't worry baby this is totally taken care of we got this we can't pay for it right now but your dad's gonna get some stock options that he can cash out at the end of the year so you just need to hold on and your job is to have faith and believe that the Lord is gonna take care of everyone this is not what I expected her to say but I couldn't argue with her, so I just pushed the feelings down and tried to pick up my faith, and I prayed really, really hard and tried to make the minimum payments. And in the meantime, Joe was freaking out and didn't really buy that the Lord was going to you know, fix his credit score. He was not that Mormon yet. So, um, but he had a point because the student loans were piling up, and then our rent check bounced. And... I got scared, so I knew I had to do something drastic. 
and I officially dropped out of school and did not get a job to prove I knew the Lord would take care of it himself, which did not go as I expected. Uh, instead, I got a call from my mom who said, well, Joy, I wanted you to know that your dad cashed out the stock options and instead of paying you back, the Lord told us to buy Christmas gifts. And you know, it's really all the same because he pointed out to me that I worked really hard on your wedding and if anything, you owe me some eternal gratitude. This is good for you and your marriage. So it's my gift, but it's your debt. So I don't, file for bankruptcy. I felt completely blindsided. Bankruptcy, Christmas gifts, what are you talking about? When did this happen? I don't understand. I am in real serious trouble. I cannot fix this. But she was totally firm. We don't owe you anything. I could not understand this at all. Uh, it did not fit in with my worldview and I was really confused. I couldn't even be heard about it because it just did not make sense. So I was trying to figure it out and I called my aunt, my mom's little sister, and she just sighed and said, they've done this before. They've done this to people all over the country. They've done it to me. I've given thousands and thousands of dollars for rent or birthday gifts because I thought it was going to give me that close personal relationship with the Lord. I thought I was giving it to him. But really it was just your mom, I think, who was doing the taking. This was not possible for me. In the world that I knew and understood, <laughs> understand, the Lord was the one who took care of us. He was the one who provided for us. And this was like the earth just crumbling down. <laughs> and it was hard for me to understand that either the, my mom was working with the Lord or she had just done this and just decided that she wasn't gonna pay us back. Neither one was a good option for me because either way, I felt completely abandoned. I lost my mom my best friend, and my entire worldview in one shot. So now, years later, we paid off the debt. I even went back to school, and Joe and I are about to celebrate our seventh wedding anniversary. Thank you very much. And I recently started talking to my mom again, which is complicated. I basically feel the way about her that I do about God which is like I had my heart broken, but I still have feelings for him. And I know this is insane, but I feel like when he was my best friend, I felt connected and alive. And now I feel like an alien in this world I can't understand at all, and I ache for that connection, to feel special, part of that club. And I don't really know if God talks to people. I have no idea what that means even, but 
now I have to wonder if that feeling I had inside before I got into this whole mess, was that just me or possibly God? I don't know. I don't know who to trust. I don't really know anything anymore. And that just leaves me on the outside, stuck. And I don't know who's going to take care of that. Thank you. Celeste there, a dear friend from way back. This is from his gorgeous album, Heart of Mine. Look him up at petercelette.com. Musicians, send us your music. Storytellers, pitch us your stories. Animators, come learn about the animations we're putting together. Students, you want risk to come to your university? Let me know. There's lots of ways to jump into what we're doing. Just write me at kevin at risk-show.com. This was Risk. I'm Kevin Allison. Our producers are Michelle Walson and David Crabb. Story editors Andy Croner and Jeff Mersel. Today's episode editor was David Crabb. And associate producers Madison Perry, Nina Moses, Jeff Glazer, Paul Gale, and Catherine Green. And don't forget what these two once said about Risk. Then. Suddenly. Anyway. Presently. What? So though we cannot know if Turn into the gold